Hello and welcome to the Go Gamecocks podcast, presented by the State Newspaper. We are your go-to source for a quick and informative look into the state of South Carolina sports. I am your host, Greg Hadley, and I am joined by our kind of do-it-all reporter, Ben Briner. How you doing, Ben? Doing it all. That's how I'm doing. I am doing it all. Uh, it has been a couple weeks since we last released an episode. That was due to some technical errors on our end. What Greg is trying to say is someone stole his laptop, and he had to get a new one. He, he doesn't want to say it, but that, that's what he means. Yeah, it's a little hard to edit when you don't have a laptop. Anyway, while we were gone, unfortunately, a lot of stuff was going on with both men's and women's basketball. Let's start on the men's side because, Ben, you kind of took over that beat a little bit ever since our, our good colleague Andrew Ramsbacker departed for a non-journalism life. We, we miss him terribly. So terribly. And, of course, right as you're coming on, they're making a surge to, I guess you could say, the bubble of the NCAA bubble. Uh, ESPN has them in there. I've seen some other websites like The Athletic don't quite have them in the, on the bubble watch yet. There is nothing we need to figure out more than what exactly the periphery of the bubble is. I kind of enjoy following some of the bubble stuff, but Frank Martin might be kind of right on this, that certain elements of sort of the, the edge of consideration are tremendously silly. And, of course, we got a lot to go. But let's take a look, first of all, at the past few weeks. How has South Carolina brought themselves back from, you know, these terrible losses to Boston and Stetson? How have they managed to work their way back even to this conversation? Well, a lot of it starts with after, the, you know, they had the weird run of winning at Clemson, good win, winning at Virginia, then losing to Stetson and starting 0-2 in SEC play, including a Tennessee game that ended on a weird charge call, which was sort of a mess. They turn around, they beat Kentucky and eventually Arkansas. And that was something that kind of put him in good position, gets him to three quad one wins. Then what was interesting was they faced down a stretch that they basically should have been favored, I want to say they were favored in four or five games. And they went 4-1 and one in that stretch, which, you know, kind of fattens up the, the win total a little bit, gets them back on track. Lost at Mississippi, where I think they were favored, and beat Georgia, where I think they were a very slight underdog. All that is to say they've kind of gotten their wins to the point where they needed to be, and now it's kind of, they avoided bad losses. Now the question is, you know, that run has gotten them into this position, and to kind of get to that next real bubble situation into the conversation i think they need at least one more surprise win and and also not to trip up anywhere so looking at this stretch i think the highlight has obviously been that buzzer beating three-pointer from jermaine kuznard to beat kentucky and then if you look at the other side of it i think it was a game or two after that they lost justin Manaya for an extended period of time with a thumb surgery correct how were they able to bounce back from that loss because Manaya. Frank has said, is so central to this team's identity. He's a, he's a vocal leader. He's kind of the spirit, he's said, of this team. Well, part of it helps that they haven't played a ton of good teams. They got knocked around by Mississippi, yes, but they beat Texas A&M, not a good team, and they played a Georgia team that looked extremely sloppy, and South Carolina took a lot of advantage. Tennessee, I think, is a solid team, albeit with their own kind of issues with injuries and such, and South Carolina just basically outgridded them which is a weird sentence, but whatever. They fought and they clawed, and then right at the end, they made just enough plays to pull it out, and Frank Martin basically said that they should thank God that they pulled it out because they didn't play well enough. So I think a lot of it has been... It's been a case of taking care of business, and that might not sound like a lot, but this is a team that 
in a lot of situations has sort of looked ahead to stretches and said, if we take care of business, we're probably in okay shape and then not done so. So I think that kind of factors into it. Who do you think stepped up the most in this run? I think Jermaine Cusinard has done a lot of it, even if he hasn't necessarily been the most efficient. He's gone from a guy that, you know, didn't play last year to far and away the most used offensive player on this team. You know, again, he's not been very efficient, but he's led well. Frank Martin has, he's the kind of guy that Frank Martin likes. He will get in someone's face, he'll challenge them, he'll bring guys along. So I think he's definitely had a role, and also Mike Kozar, who has taken a step from what he had been, which was a good defensive player who, on occasion, you know, who worked off Chris Silva, and who at times was just a nothing on offense, to not extremely efficient, but pretty serviceable. I mean, his free throw percentage is up, I think, more than 20%. He's finishing pretty well near the basket. He's blocking shots. He's getting steals. He's anchoring the defense. And he's sort of blossoming in the way that we've seen some Frank Martin seniors do. You alluded to this earlier, but the net, the the new tool that the NCAA has been using instead of RPI to evaluate teams when it comes to tournament bids and things of that nature. Frank Martin has voiced some displeasure with it, but at the same time, it is going to play a key factor in whether South Carolina can make the tournament or not. So let's look at it in the context of what the Gamecocks have to do moving forward. Uh, And you can explain a little bit the kind of the quad one, quad two, quad three, quad four things that we keep on hearing about a lot. Well, I'll start with the net. The net replaces the RPI, and this is sort of the theory behind the net, which it's tricky because whenever you rank anything, people lose their minds. That's just what happens. And they freak out about movement. Uh, Frank Martin was very perturbed that a team that lost could move up about as much as a team that won. These things are not actually that important. What matters here is the net says how strong of a team you are. Now, that doesn't tend to reflect wins and losses directly because... Sometimes a strong team loses, and sometimes a weak team wins. And, you know, if South Carolina had beaten Stetson by only one point, that wouldn't be a great—it would be a win instead of a loss, but it wouldn't have been necessarily a great thing on their resume. It wouldn't have said that they're that strong a team in theory. So the reason this tool is useful is because you can then evaluate who a team plays. So South Carolina might play a team with a bad record, but they might be much stronger, and ideally a system like the net would demonstrate that. That's why it's valuable, and it shouldn't really be used as a tool to reflect and say, South Carolina is this high in the net. Sometimes that might play a factor, but ideally it doesn't play a ton of a factor. Now, when we get to the quadrants, all that basically is, they used to do, you know, RPI, top 50, RPI, top 100 wins. All the quadrants do is trying to replicate that, which has its own problems, but it also makes an adjustment for where you play. So in quadrant one, if you beat a top 30 team at home, you get a quadrant one win. But if you're on the road, you only have to beat a top 75 team. I think it may be top 50 for neutral. I can't remember offhand. But that matters because in college basketball, winning on the road is really hard, and winning at home is considerably easier. And so it just kind of acknowledges that fact and makes it a little fairer since some of the economics of college basketball make it hard to necessarily stock up. Some teams have to go on the road a lot more, and some teams get to play at home a lot more. Looking ahead, we got six regular season games left. As we're talking here on a Tuesday, the Gamecocks are about to play Mississippi State on a Wednesday. If you could just look at these six remaining games and kind of evaluate what South Carolina needs to do to be in that NCAA tournament conversation. 
Obviously, I'm not a professional bracketologist, and it's weird that that's a job, but from kind of my vantage point of it, South Carolina, looking at this, is going to be favored in three games, they're going to be underdogs in three games, and one of each of those is kind of what you'd call a toss-up. They'll, they'll be favored by like a point or something. I think South Carolina needs at least one more quad one win. And each of the three games where they won't be favored are going to be quad one opportunities, which is at Mississippi State, Alabama, and hosting LSU. So if they can pick up one of those and avoid losses uh, in games they'll be favored by a decent amount, which would be at Georgia and at Vandy, and also avoid losing to Mississippi State at home, which is kind of a toss-up, I think they'd actually have a pretty decent case. If they could get to... 20 and 11 by the end of the regular season, so 4 and 2 down the stretch. That would put them, I think, in decent shape. It'd be boosted if they were to pull off one more win in the SEC tournament, obviously. But I think if they go 3 and 3, three quad one wins, two pretty unsightly losses in Stetson and Boston University, that might be kind of tough. I, I think this is a team that's playing well, and I think they just have to play well and consistently for those six more games, and, and they might actually have a chance. Hey there. Like what you hear? Good news. You can help ensure the state continues making journalism you love to read, watch, and listen to. If you're more into sports than news, you'd probably like our Sports Pass membership, which gives you access to unlimited sports coverage for just $30 for the first year. Subscribe to Sports Pass at thestate.com slash sportspass. You can also read more Gamecocks news by downloading the Go Gamecocks app or by signing up for our newsletter at thestate.com slash newsletters. Thanks for supporting local journalism. Now, back to today's episode. Over on the women's side, Don Staley's squad is smashing people, just smashing them all over the place, even smashing UConn. Uh, you haven't talked about them for, for a minute here on this podcast, but what has sort of been the state of that program, you know, the last few weeks? Yeah, so I think the the number one headline, obviously, is South Carolina has finally beaten UConn. From an outside perspective, that means a lot just because UConn has been such the preeminent power for so long in the sport, and it's kind of been a bugaboo that the Gamecocks have not beaten them in, I think, eight tries. In that game against UConn, they held the Huskies to two points in the first quarter, which I've said before to some other people, I don't know if we'll ever see that again in the next half century, you know, depending on how basketball as a sport evolves. It's just hard to imagine a team as good as UConn, a program as positioned for future success as UConn, ever scoring that few. And I think that's a real testament to the defensive growth South Carolina has shown as of late. I think the most recent game we talked about on the podcast was Mississippi State. That was a really close game. Since then, no team has scored more than 70 points. Only one has scored more than 60 points against the Gamecocks. They have really found their groove defensively. They do a really good job of disruption, getting up in people's faces, throwing them off their game, throwing them off their system. I think that's really been quite impressive. And then after UConn, they've they've also faced ranked teams in Tennessee and Arkansas and handled them with ease. We saw them play Vanderbilt most recently, and I mean that was about as lopsided as you could possibly get in an SEC game with maybe Ole Miss also going in there as well. So... They are cruising. They're playing better defense than ever. They're also, as of late, shooting a lot of three-pointers, which I think is interesting just because freshman forward Aaliyah Boston has been so successful and key to this team's success, overall success, thus far this season. And teams have really adjusted by trying to collapse on her. You saw it against Vanderbilt yesterday. They they would throw two people on her whenever she touched the ball. 
And to counter that, they've been feeding the outside and hitting at a very decent rate. You know, the amount of three-pointers they're, they're taking has gone up, but the overall percentage of makes has stayed roughly the same, which is what you want to see. It's just showing, like Gino Ariama, coach of UConn, said, he thought that the way they could beat South Carolina was by limiting their second-chance points and transition offense. And they did a decent job of that, but then South Carolina beat them with threes anyway. So it's just showing different aspects of their game. They're not one-dimensional. They don't need to hit threes to win, but they can if they need to. It definitely seems like Boston really gives that staff some peace of mind. Now, when you look overall at the SEC, is South Carolina just running away with this thing? They're very close. Right now, the second-place team in the conference is Mississippi State. They're at 10-2. and South Carolina's at 12-0. and They have that two-game lead, which is really a three-game lead because they own a head-to-head tiebreaker. So two more wins would essentially secure the number one seed in the SEC tournament. And beyond Mississippi State, I don't think anyone has fewer than four losses. So they're pretty close to running away with it. They got a game Thursday against LSU that'll be a little tricky just because LSU has been kind of on that border of ranked all year. They're pretty decent. They're bounced back to maybe being an NCAA tournament team. Provided they win that, that sets up a very big, maybe the toughest game left on the schedule, at least for the regular season, a road contest at, I believe they're now number 14, Kentucky, who has Ryan Howard back after she had a finger injury. That's going to be a really tough game. That might be the biggest threat to an undefeated SEC season. And then they go on the road to Florida, should take care of business there. There's no reason they shouldn't. And then they finish the season at home against Texas A&M, a team that entered the year with a lot of hype, but has struggled at times. Their star player, Kennedy Carter, has missed a lot of time with injury. And without her, they seem very vulnerable. So if they can take her out of the game, then I think they will have a very good shot of taking care of business there. But that Kentucky game is really what I would be most interested in seeing. They just dismantled Kentucky the first time they played them. But now they're going on the road to their gym. Kentucky's had a chance to maybe review the film see what they can do. They've already taken down Mississippi State, who gave South Carolina a run for their money, so I think that'll be a really great matchup. Let's be real for a moment. Just skip ahead to the NCAA tournament where this team is going to go. Are we talking about a team that is going to get a one seed and not have to leave this state until potentially New Orleans? And what kind of road do we think they might end up settling into with, you know, two seeds and all that? Yeah, so they're kind of getting what I think some people have called the Yukon treatment. They're not going to have to leave South Carolina for the entire month of March. They will go to the SEC tournament in Greenville, South Carolina, come back here, host the first two rounds, and then go back to Greenville for the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, presuming they win. That is a tremendous advantage that can't be overstated. The proximity there, it's going to let give them a huge home court advantage, and also just from a traveling standpoint, it's it's nice to not have to have to worry about that. And right now, they are the number one overall seed. And I think they could even survive a loss, a regular season loss, and still be the number one seed in Greenville because geography is so important to the selection committee. They like to keep teams close to their fan bases so they can keep attendance up. And right now, you know, they have built such a formidable resume. I think they have something like 11 top 50 RPI wins. They're head and shoulders above most of the field at the moment. When it comes to number two seeds, that's where it gets the most interesting because right now the three clear number one seeds are South Carolina, Oregon, and Baylor. That'll all be a great matchup if they make the Final Four. That'll be really fun to watch. Beyond that, it's unclear who's going to claim that number one seed. And then after that, 
you hope you don't want you don't want to get UConn. I don't think anyone wants to face UConn in the tournament, even if they are having a down year. In the latest bracketology from ESPN, they had Stanford as the number two seed. Stanford is another team that's had to rely on some youth, so that's maybe not the worst matchup for them. And it would be very interesting to see South Carolina's freshmen go up against their freshmen. All right, we will have more coverage of both men's and women's basketball as they approach the NCAA tournament. And if you have any suggestions or things you want to hear more of in the podcast, feel free to email me at ghadley@thestate.com or message me on Twitter at greghadley9. Thanks for listening.